How many of you have ever encountered pressure in your life and you got jittery under pressure? Anybody? Like, yeah. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you would go, I'm under pressure right now? There's a deadline that's looming in front of you. You know, there's so much. <clears throat> in just a few weeks, uh, my wife is a tax preparer, and in just a few weeks, I'll meet all kinds of people that are under pressure because they'll be saying, can I have your wife's phone number? Can I have her contact information? And they'll, sometimes they'll come to Becky and they'll go, can you take all of this? And I could never do what my wife does. She'll take a whole box of paper and literature and receipts and she'll put it all together for them and, and just make it work. I've been under pressure. You've been under pressure. Pressure's not necessarily bad. Pressure can be good for us. But if we get too much pressure, then, of course, we all know what happens then. We can crack up. You know, we have all kinds of things like that. We can crack up. We can fry. We can get toasted. Have you ever noticed those words we use about pressure? The other night, Becky was making some soup for us, and she was using her Instant Pot. How many of you have an Instant Pot? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. She had used the pressure cooker part of it, and she was letting the steam off. I don't see that happening enough in life where we learn to let the steam off, but we can get some real lessons from Jesus in that tonight. So let's go to the book of Mark, chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off in December. Mark, chapter 3, and verse 7. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from east of the Jordan River, and even as far as north as Tyre and Sidon. Now, you're getting into pagan territory there. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast number of people came to see him. And Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He had healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him... The spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, You are the Son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. There's not really a good way in English to capture what Jesus is saying to those demonic spirits right there. He's not being stern like a parent would be with a child. I mean, he is really just clamping down on them, forbidding them, stopping them. This is a demonstration of power that... Our English language doesn't really, can't really help us capture what the Greek is saying there. So let's look at the pressure. Let's first pray, and then we're going to take a look at the pressure that Jesus was under. Father, we love you so much. And this morning, I was meditating on how that you are the very radiance, Jesus, you are the very radiance of God's life, his love. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you will shine through you, through me, through those that are here tonight, I pray, God, that you will shine through your people. I confess to you that sometimes, Lord, instead of patience, I have anger. I sometimes, Lord, confess to you that I sometimes, instead of love and understanding, that, God, I, I fear I manifest judgment. I sometimes, Lord, even find myself, God, knowing the right thing to do, and struggling with doing it. So this evening, Lord, as I preach about pressure, I pray that you'll help each of us to realize that we are pilgrims together. 
And that to handle pressure the way that Jesus did, we just simply can't do it on our own. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit. And I have no doubt that those that are listening tonight, either online or here with me this evening, they confess their need of the Holy Spirit as well. So, Father, tonight it's not for principles that we're asking for. Lord Jesus, we're asking to be more like you. And for that, we depend upon the Holy Spirit's sanctifying power to make us more like Christ. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. I enjoyed watching the uh, college football game Monday night for the national championship. Now, you knew that was going to come up. You knew that was going to come up. One of the things that happened, though, during the game, I looked at my wife and my son, and I said, I feel sorry for TCU this evening. You know, I I do. I just felt sorry for them. My son looked at me and says, not me. (laughs) Go, Go dogs. And we just were laughing there. But that look in their eyes, that look of the pressure that Georgia, that that word kept being used, the pressure that Georgia was bringing. Even one time uh, when Mark Rick, excuse me, Mark Rick, that's the old coach of Georgia, when Kirby Smart was interviewed, he says, what do you want to do tonight? And he says, aggression. That's what I want from my team. I want aggression. And so all during the game, they, they kept talking about the pressure. And then I thought about the message I was preaching tonight, and I thought, I'm changing the whole way I'm going to pre- preach this message tonight. Because the pressure didn't let up in the whole game. And sometimes you may feel like that, that the pressure doesn't let up. The fact of life is, pressures have a way of building in our life. Pressures have a real way of building up, causing tension, causing stress, sometimes causing broken relationships. Sometimes when we would like to speak kindly, we speak harshly. And sometimes when we would like to be patient, we get angry. And sometimes because of pressure, when we really should feel compassion, what we feel is judgment instead of the compassion that God brings. And if we stop and think about it really carefully, God is always showing compassion. God is always showing love. God is always showing understanding. And aren't you glad God is patient with us? I sometimes think, too, that when we look at these stories, we're going, yeah, way to go. The crowds are following Jesus. I don't know if you've ever preached to a crowd or ministered to a crowd of people when signs and wonders are taking place and God is demonstrating His power. I've had that privilege to be there, to be a part of that, to be preaching. And so when it talks about the crowds pressing forward, people will really trample one another. That's the reason you have to have at some of these meetings that not only in, in, in Africa, not only in South America and Central America where I've had the privilege of speaking at, But even sometimes here in the States, I recall during the Pensacola revival, and I've talked about that before, people will literally just keep pushing and walking on one another, trying to get to someone to pray for them. Jesus was under an intense amount of pressure. The priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were all watching him. They'd already decided they hated him. And so they're watching every move that he makes to see if he can make a mistake. And perhaps you've had a boss, or perhaps you've had a neighbor, or perhaps you've had somebody that watched you that critically just waiting on you to make a mistake. I think another thing, and I know I'm using this word I think because I'm reading into something here in the Scripture. You can disagree with me if you want to, but this is one of those times when I really feel like I'm right when I say I think. 
Jesus, we've, we know he was the son of God, but he also was a man. He became a man. So he felt the pressures that you and I feel. He felt not only the love that you and I feel, the acceptance that you and I feel, but he also felt the hatred and the rejection of other people. And Jesus, who manifested only love and manifested only compassion, is feeling the pressure of the hatred, and he knows that there's a group of people, the Pharisees who had met with the Herodians. If you remember, we kind of closed out there in December. The Pharisees and the Herodians were meeting together to conspire, how are we going to kill Jesus? So he knows there's a contract out on his life. Look at a few things. Some of these we've looked at already. Some of these we'll be looking at. But in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5, Jesus saw the paralyzed man and he said, My child, your sins are forgiven. And the reason he said that is he wanted to demonstrate that God not only had the power to heal, but he could forgive sins. Well, this just incensed. This made the Pharisees so angry. They looked for ways to kill him. Then if you'll look at Mark chapter 2 and verse 14, he calls a man by the name of Levi, son of Alphaeus, and he says, follow me and be my disciple. Remember Levi, whom we know as Matthew, Levi threw a party at his house and he invited all of his tax collector friends. And one of the ways we illustrate this here at Woodland, tax collectors were at the very bottom of the heap in the mind of the Jewish people. You know, there were, there were the Romans, there were the publicans, but the tax collectors, they were the, very, they were the most despised, hated group of people. And if you've been watching The Chosen, any, you're now beginning to see the development of, of Matthew's character. You saw it just recently in one of the episodes and how the disciples all just kind of froze there. I think it's important to understand that those Pharisees, when they gathered around Jesus, they said, why? Why is he eating with such scum? Why is he eating with the lowlifes? Why is he eating? One of my good friends, his name happens to be Dennis, but he pastors bars. He goes into different bars all around Chicago, and he does Bible studies on bar, in bars. It's called Theology on Tap. He drinks a Coca-Cola, and all these bikers and everybody gather around him, and the bartenders welcome him in because he's a calming influence. But there are people that get so angry at him because a preacher shouldn't be in a bar. Well, I've got the feeling he's going right to where Jesus would have meant, been to meet people who needed to know about Christ. Another time, they got really mad with Jesus' disciples and Jesus because they didn't fast the way they wanted him to. Mark, And then if you'll skip down to Mark chapter 2 and verse 23, his, his disciples were breaking off grains of, of wheat to eat on the Sabbath day, which was permissible according to the law, but according to the rules they had set up. So again, it made them mad. Look at this passage from Mark chapter 3 and verse 5. We talked about this not too long ago. When Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, he held out his hand as restored. But Jesus looked at those Pharisees. He was angry and he was saddened because of their hard hearts. I have a feeling that's how Jesus looks at the people who criticize my friend for loving the bikers and the people in these bars enough to go and preach to them. He's sad and he's angry that rather than understand they feel like everything that happens in church ought to happen in a building rather than go into the world. Something else happens, though, in pressure, and that is popularity will always increase pressure on Jesus. I have a feeling 
that Princess Diana would still be alive if she hadn't have been so popular. If they weren't chasing her all over, wanting to take her picture. Becky and I were in Europe the day she died, and I remember getting up. I was going to speak in Budapest that morning and flipped on the news real quick before we left to go preach, and, and there was the news that she had died, and all of the spectacle of, of what was taking place in those tunnels that we had driven through many, many times in Paris, working in France. Popularity always increases pressure. You've got the Galileans that are coming. You've got the pagans that are coming. They're not just Jews. You've got the Romans that are suspicious because all of these crowds are gathering around Jesus. You've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Some folks had walked or rode an animal a hundred miles because now we're outside of the territory of Israel at the time. They're coming to hear Jesus. They're coming from places desperate, desperate to heal. I don't know if you remember, some of you are old enough to remember the name of Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts, I never met him. He prayed for me as a child. My mother and father took me to one of those meetings when I was crippled and and he prayed for me, but years later, I had the privilege of getting to know his right-hand man, his assistant. He spoke for us in Georgia a couple of times before he went to, went to heaven. And he would tell us how that the people would come so desperate sometime that they didn't want anybody but Oral Roberts to pray for them. So some of the prayer workers couldn't pray for them. Some of the others, couldn't, they, it had to be Oral Roberts. And people would offer money and people would put pressure so I think the thing I want you to get is to see you've got political pressure, you've got religious pressure, you've got the popularity that Jesus has with the crowds, and all of this is building up on him. Jesus went out in Mark chapter 3 and verse 7, Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples and a large crowd followed him and they came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, and Emea from the east of the Jordan River and even as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and now vast numbers of people had come. And what were they saying, basically? I'm not going to be denied. I came for Jesus to pray for me. I didn't come for Peter. I didn't come for James. I didn't come for John. I didn't come for a priest. I want Jesus to pray for me. And so you've got this vast throng pushing in upon him. Jesus instructed, look at verse 9. This is, now, this, to me this is cute, but it's not cute. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. Do you know what he's got doing? He's got a car idling right out here outside the door so that he can get away. as quick. If it gets too bad, he can get away. That's what the boat is there for. And I can see probably, again, I'm reading into it, <clears throat> I think the guy that's paddling the boat is Peter. And Peter is giving that crowd a look that would kill. <laughs> Don't you get too close to him. I'll take you out if you get too close to him. And so he's got his getaway car, his getaway boat right there so that if the crowd gets too much, Jesus is able to go. Now, why would Jesus have had a boat there unless he was feeling the pressure of the crowds that were there? He was certainly not running from the Pharisees, and he was certainly not running from the Romans. It was the pressure of people. Later on, look at this passage of Scripture, and I'm reading from Mark chapter 1. Later on, after Jesus was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. 
the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And then at John chapter 6 and verse 26, I tell you the truth. You want me to be with you because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. There's the other part of the pressure Jesus is dealing with. Because talking with people like Oral Roberts' front man and other people that I could name that worked with these large crusade-type ministries, there are so many people who come for the miracle but not the message. Let me say it again. There are so many people that come for the miracle and not the message. And the main thing for Jesus was the message. That is still the main thing for Jesus. And to take miracles and signs and wonders and to try to make that first and foremost is missing what the gospel is all about. I believe in miracles. I, I believe in the signs and wonders. And I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But nowhere does the Bible tell us to glory in that. Paul says, I glory in one thing, and that's the cross and the preaching of the cross. It's the message that matters. And so Jesus is saying, I want to keep the message center. I want to keep it. He has compassion. He wants to heal. He wants to deliver. We've seen that already in all the miracles that we've looked at in the Gospel of Mark so far. But don't forget, it's the message and it's what Jesus has come to do for you and I. And yet in his compassion, the book of Mark says in verse 10, he had healed many people that day. So all the people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. Now I have to bring out one other passage here. In Mark chapter 3, verse 11, whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God. Now, you would think, wow, this is free advertising for Jesus. But this is not how, look at me now, don't miss this. This is not how people would have heard this in the first century. Because to use someone's name was to exercise authority over them. And so when these demons were shrieking out who he was, that was a power play. And when Jesus, not just sternly, but when Jesus clamped down on them and shut them up, anything, anytime the devil is trying to promote your ministry or your good works, it's going to be twisted. Anytime the enemy is trying to promote what you're doing, it's going to be jaundiced. And so Jesus shuts them down because he doesn't need their confession of faith. And when he shuts them down, <coughs> one of the things that I want you to see is there are people really struggling with real demonic spirits. Now, don't miss this. We live in a, in a scientific age. How many times during COVID did we hear this, listen to the science, believe the science, listen to the science? If science doesn't recognize the supernatural, Jesus still knows what he's talking about. And in saying that, I'm not knocking science and I'm not criticizing science. But if Jesus called it a demonic spirit, I have a feeling Jesus knows what he was talking about. I have a strong feeling that Jesus knew what he was identifying. And when Jesus shut them up, he wasn't just speaking rhetorically. He's really shutting people up. 
And if you've worked in any kind of ministry at all where people have gotten involved in the occult or people have gotten involved with cultish things, you've, you've experienced what it means for people to be delivered. When I worked in mental health before I went into the ministry, the psychiatrist that I worked for, and this was for Polk County, Florida, he said, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I will tell you this, I have practiced this long enough to know there are demonic spirits. There are things that we deal with here that medicine can't treat, counseling can't treat, treatment. He says, there are people who open themselves up to evil. And people who open themselves up to evil, eventually their lives will be destroyed. And so Jesus is not only the process of healing those that are physically ill, he's delivering those that are physically, excuse me, delivering those that are spiritually bound as well. So the question I get asked from time to time, and I recently taught on this for a, a large group, and <clears throat> the Q&A session that followed up says, why don't we see it as much in America? I think there's a reason we don't see it as much in America. Number one, we've had the gospel preached so much in America. Number two, basically, our country still adheres to the Christian doctrine. But the more we find our culture moving away from the cross and the more we find our culture experimenting with, with the occult and with other religions, the more we'll see this activity rise again just like it is in other Western countries or Western cultures is rising again. So I just want, don't play around and don't let your children pray around with things that have to do with the occult and think that it's just innocent. There are some things not because I'm afraid, and I could, I could tell you stories to illustrate this, not because I'm afraid, but Billy Graham said something long ago talking about the exorcist. He said, I refuse to open up my mind to anything that glorifies the devil. And I think that's a good piece of advice for me. I think it's a good piece of advice for you and I. If Billy Graham thought it was good for his life, I think it's pretty good advice for my life as well, don't you? Now, let's go back to pressure for just a moment because Jesus, we look at political pressure, religious pressure, <coughs> and now we're looking at spiritual pressure. And if my voice sounds a little funny, I just had some stitches taken out of my mouth less than an hour ago, so I'm coughing and, and trying to speak at the same time. I tried to, all right, how can I bring this back? Any of you ladies, it was, it's a great book. Any of you ladies ever read Gift of the Sea by... Anne Morrill Lindbergh, it's written 50 years, great book, great book. Let me read you a quote I took from her book. She was, the life, she was the wife of Charles Lindbergh. They had the little baby, if you remember, that was killed. But this book's about 50 years old now. She wrote these, the life I have chosen as a wife and a mother entrains a whole caravan of complications. It involves food and shelter, meals, planning, marketing, bills, and making the ends meet in a thousand ways. It involves not only the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, but countless other experts to keep my modern house with its modern simplifications, electricity, plumbing, refrigerator, gas stove, dishwasher, radios, cars, and numerous other labor-saving devices functioning properly. It involves health, doctors, dentists, appointments, medicine, vitamins, trips to the drugstore. It involves education, spiritual, intellectual, physical, schools, school conferences, carpools, extra trips for basketball or orchestra practice, tutoring, camps, camp equipment, transportation, 
It involves clothes, shopping, laundry, cleaning, mending, letting skirts down, sewing buttons on, finding someone else to do it. It involves my friends, my husband's, my children's, my own, and endless arrangements to get together, letters, invitations, telephone calls, and transportation hither and yon. When I reread that and retyped that, I got on my knees once again and said, thank you for creating me as a man. What brought that to mind was yesterday a phone conversation with one of the widows in her church, and she's telling me about some of the things that were taking place in her house, and it just seemed like it all was taking place right now. My sister, I was talking with her today, and she says, oh, there's just so many little things that Gary always took care of that now they're, you know, breaking down, and I'm having to, I never had to deal with this before. And I thought about all these challenges. So I told my wife last night, and I meant it sincerely. I said, honey, I just want you to know more than ever, I appreciate everything you do. And I said, I don't think there were times when we were younger that I really truly appreciated all the pressure you were under, you know, with our travels, raising four children, maintaining a home, everything that you did. Just to thank her, pressures build. So what do we do with all of this? Well, look at your growth work, and we'll go through this kind of quickly. This is what I've discovered in life. The more you care, the busier you are. The more compassion you show people, the busier you become. The more you serve, the busier you'll become. And we may not like that word, busy, but it's just true. The more you care, the busier you are. If you're a self-centered person, you probably don't find yourself being called upon very often because people know better than to call upon you. If you're a person that just doesn't like people, you probably don't find yourself being called upon. But if there's a quality of your life, like Jesus, where you care about people and where you care about the name of the Lord... I prayed with a pastor this evening on my way to to the dentist's office... called and asked me to pray with him, and, and I just felt this prompting to pray over him about a good name and a good name for his church. And, and I said, a good name, the Bible tells us, will never perish. It, it, will bring, it will bring pleasure to other people. And it says how you have that good name is to care about God's glory, but also to care about the needs of people. So how do you handle pressure? Number one, Jesus carved out time for solitude. I didn't just want to say make time because you're literally going to have to take your calendar. You're going to have to carve it out, especially if you care about people. And you have to make time for solitude. Jesus, the Bible says in chapter 3, he went up on a mountain. He he went up to be alone. He went up to pray. In chapter 1 and verse 12, we talked about how Jesus got away. He went into the wilderness. In chapter 2 and verse 13, when he was accused of being of committing blasphemy, he went to the seaside. Chapter 3, verse 7, he went to the seaside again after healing on the Sabbath. Maybe this summer you need some time on Lake Erie or Lake Michigan. I wouldn't go right now, but maybe in the summer. In chapter 3, verse 13, I just told you, he went up onto the mountain. He'll call his disciples. In chapter 6 and verse 31, he, he took the disciples away to rest. I don't know if any of you are familiar with an old preacher by the name of Vance Havner, a great revival preacher from 50 years ago. But Vance Havner once says, if you, don't take ti- if you don't take time to come apart, you will eventually fall apart. And so 
he took his disciples away to rest. In chapter 7 and verse 24, they went even to the pagan country of Tyre to get away from the crowd. Now, let me illustrate it like this. I've never had, I've been to Las Vegas, never had a desire to go to Las Vegas, but this would be like me saying to Becky, let's go to Las Vegas so we can get away for a while. That's not going to happen. I would go to the North Georgia mountains to get away for a while where the holy city of God is going to descend one day. It's just beautiful there. But Jesus took the disciples away from Israel to the pagan country of Tyre. That says a lot to me in chapter 9 and verse 2. He takes Peter and James and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in chapter 14, he knows what's going to happen. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now look at me. Mark is the shortest gospel. Mark is a fast-paced gospel. Mark has more miracles in it than any other gospel. And yet seven times, and there's a reason for that number seven, Mark points out, that Jesus took time for solitude. How much more do you and I need it, especially if you're under pressure tonight, especially if you feel the pressure building? Two other things there. Learn to be silent. Learn to turn off the television. Learn to turn off the radio. Learn to shut off your phone. Learn just we don't have enough quiet in our life. I just prayed with someone. They're having nervous problems. You know why they're having nervous problems? Because they sleep with the radio on every single night. A grown man, will you pray for me? And I said, well, what? He just turned off the radio. He says, I can't sleep with the radio off. He said, Pastor, I have played the radio at night since I was nine years old. And now I've got all of these internal problems going on, and the doctors have traced it to noise in the background. He says, I have to have noise to sleep. And so we're praying about that. Learn to value silence and solitude and then have a sacred space. We've talked about this before. It may be your chair. It may be by your bed. Somewhere where you can, it could be your car during lunch, a sacred space in your car. Secondly, take time to pray. It's amazing how often Jesus is in prayer. And you can see Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 there. But Look at this quote here with me that I gave you. Now, this is from E. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary, and his books are out of print now, but if you can find them, they're just such great books. This is from the book, I think, The Song of Sense. Excuse me, this is George MacDonald I'm actually fixing to read you. What if he knows prayer to be the thing we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? What if the good of all of our smaller and lower needs lie in this, that they help drive us to God? Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other needs. Prayer is the beginning of that communion, and some need is the motive of that prayer. Our wants are for the sake of our coming into communion with God, our eternal need. What's MacDonald saying there? MacDonald had a big influence on C.S. Lewis's life, if you're wondering who he is. He wrote some amazing stories. MacDonald is saying... When you have a need that drives you to pray, what God is really trying to do in that need is to get you to see your greatest need is for Him. So if you're praying about finances, if you're praying about your calendar, if you're praying about your children, if you're praying about your health, 
I think probably the wise thing is to catch what Jesus' concern was with the crowds. More important than the miracle is the message. And that is that God loves you. And when you allow him to be Lord of your life, God changes everything. Now, by E. Stanley Jones, prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. Aligned to God's redemptive will, anything and everything can happen in character, conduct, and creativeness. Read that sentence out loud with me. Aligned to God's redemptive will, anything, everything can happen in character, conduct, and creativeness. E. Stanley Jones was a Methodist missionary, tremendous man. The whole person is heightened by that prayer contact. In that contact, I find health for my body, illumination for my mind, moral and spiritual reinforcement for my soul. Prayer is a time exposure to God. So I expose myself to God for an hour and a half to two hours a day, asking less and less for things and more and more for himself. For having him, I have everything. He gives me what I need for character, conduct, and creativeness. So I'm rich with his riches, strong in his strength, pure in his purity, and able in his ability. And then the same passage then tells us, share the responsibility. Jesus called the 12, and if you'll look at verse 14 with me, he appointed 12 of them, called them his apostles, they were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach. Two things I want you to see. Before he sent them out to preach, what does he want them to do? He wants them to accompany. He wants them to be with him. Look at me for just a moment. This is so important. Before you go to work, before you do ministry, before you lead your small group, you need to expose yourself to God. Because in exposing yourself to God and receiving from Him, then you're able to go out. And Jesus will send them out, and this is going to be His answer to the crowds. Jesus is going to send them out, and we'll be looking at this in a few more days. He's going to send them out, not only with authority to preach, but He will send them out with power to heal the sick as well. There is no shortage of God's power. Can you say amen? amen. But the first key is to be with Jesus. So, two principles there. Share your life with others. Share ministry, and I'm just trying to wrap this up. Share your life with others. Share ministry. And then finally, know the metrics of success. Know the metrics of how do you measure success. We need bucks. We need bodies. We need buildings. We need bucks. We need bodies. We need buildings. But that is not the metric of our success. There was the crowd, the bodies. There was a place to minister the field, and I'm sure that finances were given as a result, but that was not the metric of success. You see, if you're about getting the crowd, then all you try to do is keep the crowd. And eventually, Jesus will let the crowd go because they want the miracle without the message. So my question to you tonight is, what do you want? You can have both. But the message has to come first. So Jesus gives us two metrics in Matthew 23, 12. It's humility. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 44, it's, it's giving our all. In Matthew 19, 14, it's being like a child, having the faith of a child. Can you say amen? amen. Let me pray with you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much. 
God, for this tiny little gospel, and yet it's powerful punch to us. I ask you to bless this evening. Bless our Q&A together tonight. For it's in Jesus' name I ask. Amen, amen, and amen.